0: Attention. <laughs> we have uh, today. We have uh, one of our own uh, researchers speaking to us, Jen Doherty. Um, where'd you grow up?
1: Uh, Rochester, New York. Where? Rochester, yeah. Rochester, New, Rochester,
0: New York. York. So she's she's from the East Coast. Uh, <laughs> She, she did her, uh, she, she got her uh, B.A. In cor- at Cornell, and then she uh, went through Chicago to University of Washington, where she got her PhD and did her postdoctoral fellowship at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center. Um, there she worked with Noel Weiss, uh, uh, who's a very influential epidemiologist. Anybody who knows epidemiology will know his work. Um, we're really lucky to have gotten Jen here because um, she was offered a tenure-track position at the Hutch um, and decided to come here instead. Um, And and since being here, she's become a a very important and valued colleague um, to both uh, members of epidemiology and and, uh, also uh, researchers in cancer control. Um, She uh, has contributed to the academic mission um, greatly both through her research and uh, through her uh, uh, participation in the Quantitative Biological Sciences uh, program where she teaches a lot. Um, she's published close to a hundred research articles, uh, and uh, she's a young investigator with funding from multiple R01s, which is clearly a sign that we should listen to what she has to say today. She's an expert in the epidemiology and genetics of ovarian and lung cancer. Uh, today's talk will involve her research in ovarian cancer, where she uses uh, epidemiologic and genetic characteristics of these cancers to help us better understand causes, treatment, and prevention. Did I get that right?
1: Yeah, sounds great. All okay. right, We're welcome done. to Jen. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm really thrilled to be able to um, tell you a little bit about what's going on in my lab right now. Um, and I, I want to point out um, these, the QBS program. Um, as Jim said, it's one of the main reasons why I actually decided to come here. Um, and the work that I'm going to present Um, was only possible through the type of interdisciplinary program that we've um, developed here. Um, Unfortunately, I have nothing to (laughs) disclose. So um, I'm going to first start out with just describing um, the scope of the problem of ovarian cancer, um, but also the state of the science, because there have been a lot of changes. And then where my research fits in to try to address gaps in knowledge. So... Um, There there are about 20,000 new cases of ovarian cancer per year in the U.S., and um, people die of that disease when they get it. Um, It's the fifth leading cause of cancer deaths among U.S. women. So just to give you a sense of um, its um, relative incidence, this is the incidence of ovarian cancer, and notice the scale over here. And then notice the scale here for um, breast cancer. So it's about 10 times less common than breast cancer. So it actually makes it very difficult to study because you need large numbers of people to understand it. Um, Also, I just wanted to point out that both ovarian and breast cancer are more common in white women. But um, just to provide a little foreshadowing, um, while the incidence is lower in... And the incidence is lower in um, in black women, but survival is worse in black women. Um, so here we see that um, black women have uh, higher mortality rates than they should based on their incidence. Ovarian cancer tends to be um, a disease of Western countries, but that may be due to... Um, and you can see that here with the darker blue. Um, but that may be due to differences in... Um, Detection it's a little bit unclear again a little foreshadowing here There's this one area in East Africa where the incidence of ovarian cancer seems to be high and that caught my eye um, So ovarian cancer is Nearly always diagnosed at um, a distant stage when five-year relative survival is really really low but um, If we could find a way to identify it when it's localized or confined to the ovary um, the, we would uh, benefit, women would benefit enormously because the survival is so much better. This is a picture of what ovarian cancer typically looks like. Um, you can see the ovaries here, and they've got tumor on them, but um, tumor has spread all over the peritoneum, um, and so it's a very difficult um, tumor to, uh, to remove. <coughs> so the treatment is debulking surgery, which is removing all of the seeded tumor from the um, peritoneum, And then the treatment has been the same for 40 years, which is platinum and um, uh, taxol-based combination therapies. Um, It works really well at first, but then most women actually end up having um, eventual resistance. Survival is dependent on how much seeding of the tumor um, occurred throughout the peritoneum. Um, And then the ability of the surgeon to remove the tumor, um, meaning... um, how much disease is left in the peritoneum after surgery. And then BRCA mutations um, and uh, deactivation actually are associated with increased survival. Um, This this is a plot of cancer death rates among women from 1930 until uh, 2009. And you can see um, really different death rates for things like lung and bronchus. But um, I just want to point out that for ovary, we haven't seen any differences in in death rates. Again, kind of pointing to the fact that um, whatever we're doing has not been very effective in terms of increasing um, survival for women once diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Um, So um, it's my belief, based on um, the data that I just uh, showed you, that, that prevention and effective treatment are really the key to reducing mortality. Um, screening is has um, though there's been enormous effort in trying to find markers um, to use for screening, there have been there's no, nothing has been um, present long enough that um, the screening interval could be long enough to actually use it as a as a screened marker. Um, again, despite lots and lots of research from many, many smart people, Um, we really know very little about the epidemiology of ovarian cancer. We do know that there are two clear protective factors, which are parity and oral contraceptive use, and that the risk factors are um, family history, germline BRCA mutations, and endometriosis. So um, one of the reasons why we may have been um, having trouble finding clear patterns with epidemiologic factors is because we may have been defining the disease incorrectly. So traditionally, um, the histologic classification of uh, ovarian cancer um, was based on these four groups, and they really do look different um, morphologically, so it, may, it, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, but more recently, um, really smart scientists um, and colleagues of mine have looked at protein expression across um, the different morphologic subtypes. And they were able to classify um, these markers. So these are protein um, proteins here, and then these are the histologic types. And you can see that um, this group now called high-grade serous, sorry, is this pointer? Okay, here. Um, has very high uh, expression of all of these proteins, whereas mucinous looks completely different, very low expression in some of these, um, and different patterns with clear cell and endometrioid. So um, that, after lots of um, <laughs> replication, led to the understanding that what we used to think was um, endometrioid, the high-grade form, that is actually much more um, molecularly similar to high-grade serous than it is to low-grade endometrioid. So um, if you can imagine, we had, um, in in epidemiologic terms, we had um, misclassification of our phenotype. So um, we were looking at only 60% of the, you know, like when we were doing epidemiologic studies looking at risk factors for serous cancer, we were combining low-grade serous and high-grade serous and also um, ignoring endometrioid. So... um, This change in the classification has enormous implications for our ability to now. um, Sorry. Um, Now that we have these cleaner phenotypes, we're much more likely to be able to um, identify um, epidemiologic associations and other genetic associations, (laughs) et cetera. Beyond that, we also now understand um, people were always puzzled why um, no one could ever identify a neoplastic continuum from the ovarian surface epithelium onto high grade serous ovarian cancer. And um, it's the only cancer for which that's true. So it seemed kind of funny that we accepted that for so many years, but um, we now know um, that these high grade serous cancers, oh, sorry. This is a really important quote here. Um, So we now know that um, the cell of origin for these different types of cancers are different. um, So that experts uh, in the field have now said that ovarian cancer represents a range of distinct diseases that simply share this anatomical location, but they're not the same disease. So high-grade serous cancers account for 90% of ovarian cancer deaths, and so that's what my research is really focused on, because, again, um, it's very hard to study something that's already rare and to only look at 2, three, two to 3% of, of, um, of them. So um, the easiest thing to look at is the high-grade serous. So again, here's the ovary, and I just want to remind you that um, the ovary is a um, very dynamic organ with a lot of... Um, you know, there's uh, rupturing follicles and um, remodeling of the um, of the cells. And recently, what's been understood in BRCA-positive um, women, but then it's also known to be true in, in sporadic um, cases as well, that there are these P53 signatures in the fimbria of the fallopian tube that... Um, And these cells slough off the end of the fallopian tube, and they um, get incorporated into the ovarian surface. And even inside the inclusions, inside these cysts, uh, the follicles where um, there are very high levels of estrogens and other hormones. And, um, of course, the the entire process of ovulation is an inflammatory process, so lots of inflammatory um, features as well. So at the same time as we're understanding that ovarian cancer is not a single disease, we're also um, able to look across at at similarities between um, ovarian cancer and other cancer types. So here are pan-cancer global alteration profiles. And we see this incredible amount of um, copy number variation in um, ovarian cancer compared to all the other cancers. But mutations, um, not unlike some other cancers like lung cancer, um, almost every high-grade serous ovarian cancer has a, a mutation in P- P53. But the next set of mutations um, are only in this handful of genes, and all the rest of the mutations observed are essentially private, so um, in, meaning um, you know very few individuals have them. Um, and then methylation is not. Um, very variable, but it's extremely important, especially in terms of the BRCA pathways. So um, we also now know from these comparative um, (coughs) approaches that high-grade serous ovarian cancer is actually more similar to serous-like endometrial and basal-like breast cancers than it is, for example, to low-grade serous ovarian cancer. So um, you can see, based on copy number here, that there are um, incredible similarities. So then the, this is just a sim, uh, summary of specific vari- uh, you know, alterations in these genes where these colored um, boxes represent each of the, um, they, they correspond to these labels. So um, as with many other cancer types, the TCGA analyses really opened up a whole new world of um, Of understanding. And they, um, the major finding from their ovarian cancer paper is that there are four um, subtypes of high grade serous that are identifiable by gene expression patterns. They identified this in their own um, data and then looked in a prior study that had already also reported that there were four subtypes. So there was an enormous amount of excitement that, wow, you know, we finally figured out a way to. To understand what's going on biologically in these tumors, we've got to figure out um, assays to identify subtypes like the PAM50 and and other breast cancer subtyping efforts, and we need to identify targeted therapy. So everyone thought that this was really going to be the holy grail, but (laughs) it's pretty complicated. Um, So these are the four subtypes that TCGA labeled as mesenchymal, proliferative, and and immunoreactive, and differentiated. The goal of my research is to use my training, which is in epidemiology and genetics, to understand um, etiologic factors for each of these subtypes. I also, um, and and as um, is always the goal in public health, um, if we understand the etiologic factors, we can develop factors to prevent those etiologic factors from happening. Um, So preventive strategies. Um, The fun of being here is that I can also collaborate with people who are expert in pathology and um, bioinformatics to help understand the molecular features of these subtypes. And the goal here would be to pass this along to our friends who can understand how to develop targeted treatments. Um, And of course all of this is um, an effort to affect survival. But TCGA, when they reported the results, they were a little bit... Um, they kind of glossed over a couple of important points. <laughs> One of them, which is kind of phenomenal, is that um, more than 80% of the samples um, could belong to another subtype as, as um, equally as well as the subtype that, that TCGA assigned them to. So samples are not uniquely assigned to subtypes. That has enormous implications if you're trying to think about drugging a person's tumor. Um, As well, in in the TCGA analyses, um, 15% of samples were just excluded because they couldn't be classified. And um, in my lab, we think that those might actually be some really meaningful um, uh, data points. Um, Furthermore, though TCGA doesn't really advertise it, if you look at their latest analyses on the TCGA firehose, they now show that um, Three subtypes, not four subtypes, but three subtypes fit their updated data, which is not a small data set, almost uh, 600 samples. <coughs> so this gets messy. I now have sort of tie-dyed subtypes because they could have, you know, samples could have multiple membership. And then it looks like there are three dominant um, types like this. So um, how do we make sense of, of the observations to date? Well, my current studies, um, the first one and and the one that I'm going to spend the most time describing today is how can we um, rigorously evaluate whether the subtypes that that are being reported are actually robust. Um, The second one is um, I'd like to present some pretty exciting um, pilot findings on molecular subtypes in African-American women. And I don't think I'm going to have time for the next two. but. Sorry, the last two, but I'll, um, I've got the slides with me. If we get there, we get there. So, um, Greg Way was a rotation student, a QBS rotation student in my lab. Um, and he, um, we together developed this, um, this cross population method to understand how, um, how consistently we can observe homogeneous subtypes across populations. Um, and this, um, we compared, um, let's see, we compared subtypes uh, within populations for when we um, found three versus four subtypes, and we also looked across populations. Um, the populations that we studied are TCGA, Mayo, um, these are both U.S. studies, then Tothill is an Australian study, and Yoshihara is, um, includes Japanese women. And... Um, the AFI platform is used for TCGA and Todd Hill and the Agilent for uh, Mayo and Yoshihara. So we're kind of setting ourselves up for failure because we know that there are um, cross-platform issues. Um, so we weren't sure what we were going to find. Um, but unlike most studies where um, a discovery set is used to identify subtypes and then a classifier is developed and then that classifier is applied to other um, studies to see whether the, the same subty- subtypes could be found. What we said was, what is the data going to tell us? If we take the, um, the combined set of 1,500 genes across all of the populations and use those genes to cluster, um, what are the subtypes that, that come out? And so um, we did this for both three and four <coughs> So these are the sample-by-sample correlations, and the the colors here represent those subtypes, the the TCGA um, subtypes that I mentioned earlier. But I think, so now we're going to, I'm going to call them TCGA subtypes, but they're really TCGA-like subtypes, because these are now derived um, across populations, and we map them back to the labels in TCGA, but they're not exactly the same subtypes. So... um, when we looked at the sample-by-sample sample correlations for three subtypes versus four subtypes, it wasn't very um, illuminating. We didn't see that uh, any strong patterns based on these. Um, but we asked the question: um, When we move from looking at um, three subtypes to four subtypes, what samples move? Do they? Um, you know, how are they reclassified? So here, across the oops, sorry. Um, across the bottom, uh, we have the, um, the four TCGA subtypes, and then um, we've plotted the um, three subtypes across the four subtypes, so you can see um, where the changes happen. So basically, um, regardless of whether we classified with three or four groups, um, subtype one was really easily identified. Same thing, pretty much, with subtype 2. But subtype 3 tended to split into 2. And then there was a little bit of movement of some of the other things. But um, the major pattern that we see is that subtype 3 splits into um, a second type. So when we look at this across populations, we actually see pretty remarkable similarities. Again, um, subtypes (laughs) 1 and 2 are really solid. There's very little movement into subtypes 1 or 2. And subtypes 3 and 4 tend to split. So we wanted to be um, more precise in our ability to um, understand the similarities of these subtypes across populations. So we used um, we wanted to summarize the differential expression of the 10,000 genes that we had. And we did this using um, moderated T statistic vectors um, using significance analysis of um, microarrays. And what we did was we just correlated it. We simply correlated um, these moderated T-statistic vectors across populations. (coughs) Uh, Well, within each population and across the four populations. So these are results within populations. And I I don't think that these will surprise you, given um, what you saw with the the bar plots. What we see is that um, for both the mesenchymal and proliferative, we have extremely high um, concordance. It's all over um, 0.94. Some of them are perfect. Um, But we have this more variable situation for um, the other two groups. Now here, this differentiated because this is um, for K equals 4. We had to correlate it to um, immunoreactive. Um, So now let's expand um, looking at these correlations across populations. So... um, This is k equals 4, and we're looking at the TCGA um, population versus the Japanese population. So here we can see, again, that um, the blue group in TCGA is highly correlated to um, the blue group in Yoshihara, as is the red group. But what's also very interesting here is that um, the blue group is inversely correlated with the red group. and then again, we're not, not surprising. We don't see. Um, there's, this is a little bit more muddy here when we look at the purple and green groups. We can expand this to looking at the. Um, sorry, it looks a little funny. Um, to looking at all of the populations together, um, to understand you know this, you know these questions of how homogeneous um, are the subtypes across populations, and how different are they from other subtypes across populations? Those are both really important features. Um, So uh, we see here that, um, again, we're seeing a little bit of um, degradation with subtypes um, purple and green across essentially all the populations. Oh, and sorry, these are scatter plots of the 10,000 genes, just to show you the spread of the data. Um, So some of these are really clear um, and uh, correlated, and others are much more diffuse. So here um, we see that three subtypes seem to fit the data better than four in the sense that we um, have stronger cross-population correlations across subtypes. These are the summaries. Again, we see um, high correlation for the mesenchymal and proliferative groups. much less for the immunoreactive and um, and differentiated groups. So we also wanted to know, um, this is all fine. We were using k-means clustering. But what happens if you use a different clustering technique? Because we really want this to be bomb-proof. We want um, people to really be able to um, be clearly identified by their subtype. And it turns out that um, this is k-means for um, four subtypes and three subtypes up here. Uh, non-negative matrix factorization for three subtypes and four subtypes, and the correlation is essentially perfect, Um, except for in TCGA, there's a little bit of funny things happening over here. Um, But uh, there's really no difference by clustering technique. Um, Unfortunately, we don't see any difference by survival when we look at k equals 3 or k equals 4. But I don't think that's necessarily a deficit because um, what we're trying to do here is identify, um, clearly identify a homogeneous subtype or homogeneous subtypes that can then be targeted for treatment. And without the proper treatment, treatment we may not see differences in survival. So um, we believe that this uh, provides extremely strong evidence to show that the mesenchymal and proliferative subtypes are real, and um, they're not often confused with other subtypes. We see this. The evidence um, is based on comparisons across populations and also within populations. When we try different um, clustering techniques and different numbers of looking for different numbers of groups. Um, also, we um, you know we did this sort of with one tied high, one hand tied behind our back because we were looking at different gene expression platforms as well. Um, so. Um, Our recommendation is that only the mesenchymal-like and um, proliferative-like subtypes should be uniquely targeted for treatment. Um, the others, we've got to figure out something else to do. Um, and then I'll just pause to say that this technique that we are using um, can be applied to any disease type that has, um, you know, that has multiple subtypes and where there are... Uh, publicly available data or multiple data sets available. Um, And I think it's a very valuable exercise. Um, So the person who's doing more (laughs) is James Redd, who's in the audience here. Um, He's uh, my PhD student in QBS also. Um, And he has an F31 training grant to support his work um, to leverage the cross-population subtype similarities but now to identify um, more granularity. So he's looking at pathways. um, uh, And in fact, he's looking at metagenes, which are linear combinations of gene expression vectors. Um, And his question is, um, are samples better classified by these pathways rather than the subtypes? Um, And then, can we see differential activation of metagenes across subtypes? Are they, is this something that we can reliably identify across populations? Meaning, are they robust? And then, are there um, differences in survival? Maybe this is where the difference in survival comes in. So, um, again, what we did was leverage the, um, the data across populations. So here we have a Venn diagram of the subtype-specific differentially expressed genes by population. And we took the intersection of all of the, um, of the uh, differentially expressed genes, because we reasoned that if those are differentially expressed across all populations, maybe they're a core feature of um, that subtype. We then used that set of genes to identify metagenes, or these linear combinations. Um, and we made, well, James made lots of these figures. <laughs> um, After doing um, a really a lot of analysis, this was not trivial, Um, and I'm kind of skipping a a big piece here. I don't know if anybody went to his, for the people who went to his um, research in progress last week, um, they know what happened between the the previous slide and this one. But um, cutting to the chase, he found five distinct metagenes that are differentially activated across subtypes in all of these separate gene lists that he created. Um, and observed that three of them were associated with differential survival. So these are pathway labels that we just used because um, it's easier than just kind of calling it MetaGene 11. But I have to say that um, this this is a work in progress. We're having we have to figure out a better way to annotate pathways, and that was a lot of the discussion um, in James's RIP last week. Um, so, but. What's, what we found, what James found, is that um, these metagenes... So here we have um, the three subtypes, the mesenchymal, proliferative, and immunoreactive. And this is the activation of um, the metagenes. And we see that there, this p-value indicates that there um, is differential activation of this metagene across these subtypes. And just by eyeballing it, you can see that um, there's lower activation of this metagene in the proliferative group. Similarly, um, this other metagene has lower activation in um, the proliferative group. So um, I think you will not be surprised to hear that we wanted to know whether we could observe the same um, patterns across populations. Sorry, the, the slide before was just TCGA. So we now look, this is TCGA again. We now look across the populations, and you can see by these p values that we indeed see um, a a large difference in activation of this metagene in subtype, um, in the proliferative subtype. So, um, James presented it in a funny way last week where he said, um, Jen asked me if um, this was enough or whether, and uh, the answer was no, we had to validate even further. Um, And the reason why is because these gene lists are dependent. They're not not independent of populations. And so to understand whether we still got the same results um, independently of um, populations, we used a leave-one-out analysis um, to determine whether we can see the same metagenes. Again, um, many, many, many hours of work later, what we see in these leave-one-out analyses are... um, extremely strong correlations. So these are leaving out um, each of these data sets. We see that both um, the genes contributing to the metagene and also the activation um, of the metagene correlate nearly perfectly, actually, across um, most of these. So that was really, really, really exciting good news. This is an extremely robust metagene that we can't help but observe. this one is, um, this is the CXCR4 metagene, and it's, um, you know, again, we see pretty strong uh, differences across subtypes, maybe not in Konechni, Um and we see maybe slightly lower correlations, but still, um, it's, it's a very robust finding. So, now we decided, um, rather than looking at survival across subtypes, what does it look like to... Um, examine survival across activation scores. And so what these lines indicate are um, tertiles. So this is the bottom tertile. The purple is the bottom tertile, and the top is the um, top tertile of um, activity scores. And so um, high activity is actually, so individuals in this group, which cuts across the mesenchymal and immunoreactive subtypes, um, these people have um, a increased survival, actually. Um, so now when we look at similar tertiles in the CXCR4 um, metagene, we're now looking pretty much at um, mostly the uh, immunoreactive group um, and comparing them to uh, a little bit of the mesenchymal and, and the proliferative. And here we see an increased survival. Um, risk of death. So you could ask, okay, so are, um, are the people with, sorry, are the people with uh, high activity in this metagene the same people who have low activity in this metagene? But no, it's, that's not true. They're completely, um, they're not related at all. They're not um, correlated in any way. The um, correlation coefficient was 0.3. So these look like they're unique um, markers that may be associated with survival. So um, we have more work to do with this, but um, the you know this preliminary work does indicate that uh, metagenes may actually be um, better to look at than subtype assignments because they provide more granularity, and they also allow people to. Um, have membership in more than one, or their their tumor have features that are consistent with more than one metagene. And so those combinations may actually really help us um, think about it. So maybe there's this new conceptualization where um, not only are these, I mean, these types are actually starting to not look like types, right? They're really blurring together. (laughs) But this may be the more realistic picture. So this is to remind me to um, to to remind you that um, survival from ovarian cancer is disproportionately (laughs) low in uh, women of African ancestry. So um, their five-year relative survival is 36% versus 44% for um, women of European ancestry. Clearly, there are differences in access to treatment. So not only um, appropriate treatment, but of course, um, appropriate debulking surgery by um, someone who's very well trained in doing that type of surgery. But even after taking treatment differences into account, there's still excess mortality in um, African-American women. And this you can observe this um, in uh, the SEER cancer registry data, and also um, there's enough data, though it's pretty sparse, um, in clinical trials where women are actually um, on exactly the same treatments women still do worse, uh, African-American women still do worse than European ancestry women. It's been known now for some time that in breast cancer, um, more aggressive subtypes are more common in women of African ancestry. um, Even though uh, within within those aggressive subtypes, survival for African ancestry and European ancestry women tends to be actually the same. But also, um, it's it's been known that um, for um, more survivable subtypes of breast cancer, African-American women tend to do worse. So we have been trying to ask the question of whether something similar could be happening for um, ovarian cancer subtypes. This is a collaboration with... um, Casey Green and Laura Tape, I think, is in the room, and um, Joellen Schildkraut, who's a um, colleague who's now at University of Virginia. So we, um, we wrote an R01 to ask the question whether aggressive subtypes are more common among African-American women than European ancestry women, and whether African-American women experience worse survival from less aggressive subtypes. So remember, we don't actually quite know <laughs> what... Um, the aggressive subtypes, the more and less aggressive subtypes are. So we're trying to put all of these puzzle pieces together at once. Um, so we um, have looked at the TCGA data. It's very uh, difficult to make inferences about it because there are only um, 24 African-American women. Um, but here we have these, um, these same sets of correlations for k equals 3 and k equals 4. So this is within TCGA, the samples were clustered within TCGA using, um, so there there was no dif- uh, they didn't separate the samples by ancestry. Um, they were all clustered together. And what you can see is that the correlations are only about um, 0.52 to 0. 0.6 for each of the subtypes. This is a very underpowered um, examination, but um, given that when we looked at correlations of subtypes across populations on different platforms, um, and saw correlations more like 0.8, um, these correlations seem lower. So this may suggest that there are, you know, while, while the same subtypes could be, can be assigned in both populations, there may be differences in the gene expression patterns in um, the tumors that are assigned to the same subtypes. So, um, we wanted to do our own de novo (coughs) subtyping um, work, and so Joellen is the PI of um, the ACEs African American Cancer Epidemiology Ovarian Cancer Case Control Study. And um, you can imagine that with such a rare cancer, you would have to have a very large um, geographic area, and Indeed, this, is, um, this takes place at 11 sites, um, mainly in the eastern and uh, central U.S. Um, so the age, well actually, so I, I think the key thing on this slide is that um, not only are we getting tumors, but we're also getting um, extensive risk factor data, um, prognostic data and treatment, um, and also questions about um, access to um, care and questions about discrimination and so forth. Um, So this is an extremely rich uh, source of data. So what we've already done is looked at, um, and this is in um, collaboration with um, Joanna Hamilton and Rachel West, Um, we have looked at gene expression in 58 FFPE tumors from this population. Um, And we did a centralized pathology review. Laura Tate actually um, did a lot of that. Um, so that we knew that we were getting high-grade serous um, cancers. And then we used K-means clustering to look, surprise, for three and four subtypes. Um, So here um, we correlated ACEs to TCGA um, European ancestry women. I'm sorry, this is a little washed out, but but I guess it does demonstrate that um, (laughs) the correlations were not very strong. Um, so, the correlations for the, the two subtypes that we thought were the, um, the cleanest are 0.56 to 0.65, um, which is reasonable. Again, we're looking across platforms, and we haven't looked across FFPE to fresh frozen tissue either yet. So, we're kind of expecting lower correlations here. Um, and then, the, but we're seeing an even lower correlation for the differentiated like subtype at only 0.21. But what was particularly interesting is that one subtype um, is not, it's, it's either negatively or positively weakly um, correlated with any of the established TCGA subtypes. So um, this is actually pretty exciting because it looks like it could possibly be a novel subtype, but this is really hot off the press, so we have a lot more work to do to characterize um, this subtype before we can really um, conclude that. And uh, Brock and I have been WRITING GRANTS LIKE mad TO LOOK AT um, OTHER MOLECULAR FEATURES. IN THE, in the R01, WE PROPOSED TO LOOK AT um, EXOME SEQUENCING OF GERMLINE AND TUMOR, BUT THEN um, WE'D LIKE TO LAYER ON um, METHYLATION AND COPY NUMBER ALTERATION TO REALLY DIG IN TO um, EACH OF the, THE SUBTYPES THAT WE'RE IDENTIFYING, BOTH IN um, EUROPEAN ANCESTRY AND uh, AFRICAN ANCESTRY WOMEN. So, Even though I say the small amount of data available to date, I can tell you that this is the largest study of (laughs) African-American, of the molecular features of African-American women to date, 58. That's it. Um, So the data suggests that um, analogous subtypes probably exist, um, but that there may be some key differences um, within those subtypes, and that there may be this novel subtype that that I just described. So back to this little spot in um, East Africa. So uh, um, cancer does not get a lot of attention in Africa. This, um, this is Jackson Oram, who's the, um, the head of the Uganda Cancer Institute. And um, I really like this quote. Uh, basically, he says, you know, cancer is just the same as any other disease that's killing us here. So we can't ignore it. And in fact, um, while Africa makes up 15% of the global population and 6.4% of new cancer cases, there's essentially no spending on um, treatment in in, um, Africa. Only about, so part of the reason why we may have seen the uh, differences in incidence across across the world is that some places have better um, cancer registries than others. And in Africa, um, Uganda is one of the few places that actually has a really good cancer registry. And that may explain um, the reason why we're seeing the higher incidence of um, ovarian cancer there. But um, I think it's very important to realize that within the next decade, and this was written in uh, 2010, no, I guess it was 2013, so... And it's 2015 now, so like in eight years, the the, um, incidence of cancer in Africa is going to increase by 80%. So this is a a train wreck. Um, So this is the Uganda Cancer Institute, um, the lymphoma treatment center. (laughs) Um, When we were there, um, Laura was there, and uh, Casey Green came, and a few others. Um, We saw people with their... um, their uh, chemo drips hanging from trees, and they were sitting underneath. Um, It's a completely different setting than than what we have here. Um, But let's now look at the age-standardized incidence and mortality of um, the top 15 cancer types in Ugandan women. And what you notice immediately is that ovarian cancer (laughs) um, is actually higher up in this list than it is in the U.S., Um, and remarkably, the, in, the age-standardized incidence and mortality um, of ovarian cancer is essentially identical in Uganda as it is in the U.S. So why is that? Um, we know, I, you know, I, I told you what these prote- protective and risk factors were, but we don't know what the um, prevalence in Uganda is, except that we know, we do know that um, parity is like 6.1 per woman there, um, And about 1.8 here, so uh, and it should be protective, but it clearly isn't. um, um, It it, it may not be protective. I mean, we also don't know whether um, you know there could be issues with diagnosis and so forth. But um, and there could be misdiagnosis. So all of this is unknown. But um, so it it begs you know it. it, We need to figure out exactly what's going on there. so what we're doing is, um, this is our, uh, we call it our grossing poster, otherwise known as the gross poster. Um, so uh, these are laminated posters that um, Laura Tate and Evelyn Fleming developed to put in the operating theaters in um, in Kampala, Uganda um, operating theaters. So we, um, so this is the CFIM protocol, which is the... Um, a way to um, dissect the fallopian tubes so that we can actually start looking at things like those P53 lesions that I showed you early on. Um, And uh, so we're getting fresh frozen tumor, also FFPE tumor, and um, blood from these women. And then um, the last study, I'm just going to give a a quick overview. Um, In U.S. women, I I did a lot of work on ovarian cancer and... um, in the Seattle area, so Western Washington, and over the years we collected um, over 2,000 um, women data on um, women with uh, ovarian cancers, and we went back and got all of their FFPE tumors, and we're now um, using what we know now to um, to retype them. So centralized path review um, with some of the leaders in the field at University of British Columbia. These guys. Um, led the way in understanding um, the new um, classification of ovarian cancers by morphology and protein expression types. Um, So um, we're going to be running their uh, latest um, classifiers, their protein-based classifiers. Actually, I shouldn't say we're going to be because we actually are almost done with that part. Um, And we are also almost done with um, using a nanostring probe set, um, which is particularly robust in FFPE, and it's a little cheaper than the um, HTA array, which we've used in the African American samples. We've also um, combined forces with several other studies, so we're going to have data on about um, 5,000 uh, tumors instead of 2,000. Um, and one of our colleagues is actually colleagues is actually trying to use gene expression. Um, uh, classifiers to understand the, um, the new histologic types, which I didn't spend a lot of time talking about. So he's actually trying to figure out whether he can use gene expression to differentiate between low-grade serous, high-grade serous, endometrioid, clear cell, and mucinous. Um, and then the work that I'm more interested in is actually really focusing on the high-grade serous um, subtype. So with that, um, I wanted to thank um, you know, Laura Tafe, James Rudd, Joanna, Hamilton, Rachel um, and Chris Amos for their work here, um, also at Penn, of course, Gregway and Casey Green. Um, and then the work in Uganda has been really um, really satisfying because we have such incredible colleagues, but really frustrating because there's so many hoops <laughs> to doing a study like that, and it has not gone as quickly as we had hoped. And then, of course, one of my um, mentors, Marianne Rossing, who um, who really taught me everything I know about ovarian cancer, um, and then just uh, some of our funding. Any questions?
0: Yep. I was going to ask about the two mega genes you identified by
1: differential expression. Mm-hmm. Known
0: about might, that might be regulating differential uh, regulation
1: profile? Well uh, James decided to have Thanksgiving rather than um, <laughs> work on those analyses. <laughs> it's pretty hot off the press. We're trying to figure out ways to identify the pathways. Um, this this is a real problem because the I think what we're finding are um, we may be finding dysregulation. So you can't find um, you know, the, a, a set of genes that are kind of um, expressed in, a, in an unusual way in these pathway-based databases. And so um, at James's uh, rip, um, it was suggested that we look at um, upstream, upstream um, regulators to see if we can start identifying um, or getting a handle on what's going on. Because, honestly, I put, I put labels on those. But those are not statistically significant in any way. So, and in fact, James, we, we're not even sure, what did you say? You're not even sure if the genes are, that they're labeled by are even in the vectors that we're looking at.
0: Associated associate SNPs to uh, genes in those pathways.
1: We have a lot of work to do with actually understanding those pathways. It's, and again, it's, it's not going to be that straightforward. So but James can update us as he works on it. Yeah, that's his next step. Mm-hmm. So you had that that grossing gross poster, and I was wondering if anybody has taken a dissected tumor from head to tell or tale and, and did done genetic special profile across the tumor to show that it actually is consistent and that you, what you're seeing is not
0: heterogeneity but really different sometimes.
1: So you definitely see heterogeneity across um, parts of a tumor. You saw how big that tumor was? Um, there there are certainly clonal populations. But um, the small amount of data that's out there um, show that there are probably um, consistency, there's probably some consistency across the multiple foci. But I wouldn't be surprised if that's a lot of um, the problem, that we may actually see clonal populations that have um, features of some of the, of, the, of the different subtypes, and we just don't, um, you know, we haven't been able to systematically do it because, you know, the cost of doing a study like this is extremely high, and then multiplying it by five different locations of the tumor makes it even more expensive, but worth, still worth doing. It's certainly something on my list of things to do. Do you have platinum-sensitive and platinum-resistant from the same patient? see if the signature's change to You know, people, there are a lot of papers on that. I, and I, we could look at publicly available data if people have done um, gene expression arrays on them. We could look at that in publicly available data. I don't have the data myself. Yeah, that would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Is it known why parity and oral contraceptives are protective? Well, there are a lot of hypotheses about it. Um, Generally speaking, I think the most um, well-accepted idea is that um, they both are related to increased exposure to progesterone, um, which has anti-apoptotic properties. So it may be that um, the ovarian... um, any uh, um, cells that are starting to transform are sloughed. I'm curious about the FFPE microarray experiments. Is that?
0: I mean, I was not really aware that you can do arrays
1: on FFPE. Yeah. That array, no. I mean, the the array is working extremely well. Um, it's the Affymetrix HTA 2.0, um, and we yeah we were pretty impressed with it. And colleagues, we started using it because um, the uh, like the Quackenbush group at Harvard was doing it, and I kept seeing them at meetings, and they kept saying how great it was. And, um, you know, it's not like, we, we are still going to have to worry about things like batch effects. Um, but it's remarkably, um, I mean, we, we didn't have many QC issues with it at all. And um, it has a lot of alternative transcripts. So it's actually, I mean, I I should um, have a disclosure that AFI should pay me for this, but um, I actually think in my world, I like using that array better than using RNA seq because it's a really easy pipeline to clean the data. And it, they're well mapped, everything's understood. Um, and it works really, really well in FFPE. So I don't, and nobody has been criticizing me in grants about it. So. I have
0: a lot of FFPE samples, and I've been just doing nanostring, so...
1: This is um, cheaper. And better in my view. I, I have more problems with my nanostring study with batch effects um, that are, you know, pr- pretty problematic, I think. Anyway, any other questions? That, I mean, I've only had experience with the 58 um, tumors on the, on the HTA 2.0, though, so, yeah. You just need to go to the right lab. Yeah, that's true. That's true. uh, Join me in thanking um, Jan for a wonderful talk.